Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super, super excited with our guest today. I mean, we're going to be talking about fundraising, acquisitions, acquisitions, you know, really that happen as a result of maybe like a fundraising event. I mean, you name it, uh, but I think that we're going to really enjoy and be inspired with our guest today. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Arthur Waller. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Alejandro. So, Arthur, so give us a walk through memory lane here. So you were born in Paris, in the suburbs of Paris. So how was life growing up? <laughs> I can't complain. Uh, had a good, uh, good childhood in the suburb of Paris. And, you know, when I was 18, went to, to college in Paris, uh, studied economic, economics and, and mathematics, and then uh, even went abroad for, for uh, a study abroad year uh, at NYU in New York. Um, and that's when I heard for the first item about the startup that built a dynamic pricing system for uh, baseball clubs in the US. And I came back, I started my master in uh, uh, economics and econometrics, uh, did two internships working for Goldman Sachs and for the IMF. Actually didn't like it so much. Uh, and uh, that's what pushed me into entrepreneurship. And because I liked a lot the idea of, of dynamic pricing for baseball tickets, I tried to think how we could apply it to you know, either the same ticketing industry or another industry in Europe. Uh, and with some friends of high school and college, we ended up uh, launching PriceMatch. So then how were the early days of PriceMatch? Back then, I was 22 years old. Didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. Didn't have anyone in my family uh, being an entrepreneur. And so we basically were a group of, of friends in our university's incubator. And we made lots of mistakes, <laughs> obviously. So first, it took us very long to come to identify the right market, uh, something like four or five months to decide that the hotel industry was the right market for, for us. Then it took us probably five months to build the MVP. Uh, which we brought to market. And then we raised our seed round uh, six months later. So in total, it took us 18 months uh, from the moment we started working on it till the moment we, we raised our seed round. Uh, the good thing is that we were 22. We didn't have kids. We didn't have families. 
and so it was all bootstrapped with uh, uh, student loans, uh, and uh, and it was fun times. And and in this case, I mean, just so that the people you know listening really really get it, what what was the business model here with Price Match? How were you guys making money? So it was a, a pure SaaS uh, business selling software to hotels, uh, and the hotels would pay, pay us a SaaS license to you know be able to get our price recommendations. Uh, was a decision making tool. And so on average, we would charge 250 euros per month per hotel. And you were alluding to it, but this was obviously your first company. And when it's your first rodeo, it's not as easy to raise money. So how did you go about capitalizing the business? And 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 really back then in France, uh, you know, startup was not what it is today. Right. Uh, so I didn't, I also didn't have really friends that had done a startup before or uh, and so we kind of randomly fell into fundraising uh, and, and VC. So it's actually a French VC called Partech uh, who got in touch and said they heard about price match. I had no clue that, you know, what we had could be finance, etc. And so we met with them. They said, you know, you guys need to be more ambitious. You have a great product, but if you want to grow, you need to, to go to market. And for this, you need to hire salespeople and you need to do it in France, but also grow broad, et cetera. Uh, and so we raised um, 1 million euros seed round with them back then. And they were really, so Romain Laveau, who was the, the partner, is still, and is also uh, uh, on the cap table in our, in our new company, was really advocating for us to be more aggressive. We were very lean uh, because, you know, we started the company and had really little money. So the first 18 months, I think we, we spent maybe like, you know, hundreds, 120,000 euros, something like this, in 18 months. We had only interns. We were not paying ourselves, et cetera. Uh, and so we really had to change our, our mindset to become more aggressive. There was one US competitor that had started at the same time, same time as us that was really well-funded. And so that's also what pushed us, you know, realizing, you know, you might have the good, we might have a good product. If we don't become more aggressive in terms of sales and go to market, then uh, they will eat us. Uh, and so. We, the moment we started raising the money, that's when we really accelerated. And then, um, you know, in the next 12, 18 months, uh, we grew the company from 20 to about 100 people. And, and we were doing well. We had a, a, sign, a, a big deal with, the, with Accor, uh, which is the largest European uh, hotel company. Uh, and we were going to raise our Series A uh, to go into more serious growth. Um, we had a we had signed a term sheet uh, with some investors, some Swedish investor, and that's the moment when I randomly met with uh, some Booking.com folks at a trade show, and so we were trying to go to market either directly to hotels or through other hotel technology companies that would integrate us uh, in white label and resell us. Uh, and Booking.com had just made a push into the B two B hotel tech space. They had bought a company out of Seattle and another one in Barcelona, uh, building technology for hotels. And I was telling them, you know, you have several pieces, but you don't have rough management. Why don't you white label our technology and, and distribute it? Uh, and I, we had a really good fit with the with the person I was, uh, who was my contact person at Booking. Uh, and then we we acquired a very small competitor of us in Amsterdam. So I ended up traveling back and forth to Amsterdam. Uh, and every time grab the coffee with with people at booking and 
I realized time after time that the questions were becoming more and more serious, let's say. Uh, and at one point, uh, I got a call uh, from my contact person at Booking who said, we might be interested in, a, in acquiring price match. I, I chatted with my co-founders and I told them it might be a good time because, um, you know, we had only raised 1 million euros. Uh, the founders, we still own 75% of the company. And the moment you do your Series A, then it's another story, right? Uh, the company becomes more expensive. Uh, you need to grow much, much more. Uh, and so I told them, you know, if you are really interested, we need to move fast because it's it's now or 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 probably not tomorrow. Um, so then, so then, what happened? Uh, I mean, how how long did it take? How many conversations to get to that point of you receiving that phone call? And then what happened next? So I probably met with uh, had like maybe four or five meetings uh, before that phone call, and those meetings were, I would say. You know, uh, so with more and more senior people uh, in the company, uh, and then once we had that phone call, we had to discuss about the terms, obviously, and that that took longer than what I expected, probably about, I would say, a month and a half, two months maybe, till the moment we got a, an actual term sheet, a letter of intent that everyone kind of agreed on, and then we signed that letter of intent, and then it. I would say two extra months from that moment to the to the closing, and and the you know the the scary thing with us was that we were about to raise our Series A, uh, we had already signed the LOI, so we had already anticipated that we were going to get the cash, and so we were burning you know quite some money, and had nothing left in the bank, and so it was risky for us because we had to basically cancel our Series A to explore uh, the acquisition with Booking. And first, we needed cash to finance ourselves during those discussions. Uh, and Booking actually offered to lend us money during the discussion, but you don't want to be dependent uh, of the person you are talking negotiating yeah, okay. with. Okay. Uh, and, and then if the conversations didn't go through, then we were in big trouble. Uh, we were hoping that the investors we had been dealing with they would understand and they would get back to the table, but it was nothing was sure. Uh, and we were really lucky to find on our way our uh, banker uh, from BNP Paribas, who actually gave us a 1 million euros credit line without any warranty. Uh, so he was also an LP in our investor, but he said, I trust you guys. And, and that's how we got financed during all those discussions. So it wow. was uh, so Unbelievable. And, and then the transaction uh, basically was over 50 million. So incredible, incredible outcome for the first business. Now, one thing that is very interesting here is that on price match, you know, you have or you had six co-founders. And now in your new company, Penny Lane, you have seven co-founders. So, I mean, it sounds like you go to like a party and everyone becomes a co-founder. I mean, what's going on? How, how do you manage so many co-founders? I mean, there's a lot of egos there to manage. Yes, so I think in the first company, everyone, when we started, told us, uh, you know, you guys will never keep together. It, you're going to be fighting all the time, etc. And in the end, we felt that, you know, it was great because we had a lot of work and it was, we were quite complimentary. So we felt as long as each co-founder has a very clearly defined scope uh, and you don't overlap, then things go well. And so we ended up, you know, 
selling the first company, being six and 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 happy and uh, remaining good friends. Uh, and so when it was time to launch Penny Lane, uh, so we are seven co-founders. You've got four of the six co-founders of the first company. Uh, you've got another one who is uh, one of our first employees of the first company who is a co-founder now. Uh, and you have two new ones uh, who, who came uh, extra. Yeah, again, I think the, the scope is really clearly defined. Uh, we have a lot to do and we've been working together for a long time. So I think when you launch a company, it's actually, you know, if you, do, if you get all the, all the upside of having, uh, you know, seven C-level people that know each other well, uh, you know, trust each other, it's actually a, a, real, uh, a real secret sauce. So I think we are, we are lucky that it, it works well. We are basically you have five of them that really have like teams uh, that they manage, and then two of us, uh, Felix, who is the CEO, and moi, and, and me, who is the CEO. Uh, we don't have teams directly. We focus more about a certain area of the business and, and more transverse, uh, you know, stuff like strategy and stuff like this. Nice. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I gotta tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike sieverson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, Penny Lane. So obviously the company is acquired by Booking. Uh, you do the vest and resting, as they call it. And then eventually you come across the next idea, the next idea, Penny Lane. So how did the idea come to you and what was that process like of in from incubation all the way to launching it? Yes, so I think you know while we were at uh, at Booking, uh, one thing we've done is we uh, reinvested quite some money into the the startup ecosystem uh, in Paris, and we were we had the chance to see you know what worked and what didn't work for other uh, projects, um, and we felt that the project that worked the best uh, among those that we invested in were the ones that had a very what I would call scientific approach. To ideation, uh, and in that sense, I mean, people that really validated there is a problem. My solution to that problem is perceived as such by uh, people in the market, and 
those customers are willing to pay for my solution. And really in that in that order. Um, and so we've really tried to look for an ID. We set some criteria. Um, so our criteria were we are looking for a very large market, uh, a market where tech would make the difference, and ideally a replacement market instead of an evangelization one. Uh, it was maybe our biggest frustration with our first company that 80% of hotels would tell us, I love your product, your software, it's great. But you know what? I'm going to stick to Excel because I don't want to create a budget for this. And so this time we were looking for a market where people already have a budget. They already pay for some software, but you need to come and do better. Uh, and so we've tested many ideas. It took us about four months. But talking to small business owners, entrepreneurs around us, when we asked them, what is your day-to-day -day struggle? Um, accounting and financial management came back all the time. And so it sounded quite vague and, and quite vast as well uh, and broad, but we ended up doing very heavy user research, uh, talking to about 120 people. Uh, and what they all told us was, I love my accountant. He or she is my local trusted advisor, but I don't have the right tools to work with him or her. And I'm lacking you know, a place where I can log in and see all my financial data. If I'm a big company, I have an ERP. If I'm a small company, I don't have an ERP. I don't have that, that single source of truth of financial data. And so that's what we decided to, to go for. Now, what were then, now that you decided to go for that, then what were the next steps after that? During that ideation phase, I wanted to validate that there was a real need uh, from customers, etc. Also wanted to get the feedback from some investors I knew in the market. Uh, and there's one investor that, you know, introduced me to lots of his portfolio companies, gave me a chance to do user research with them, uh, was a good sparing partner. Uh, this investor is uh, David Santef from Global Founders Capital. And so the moment we you know, had done our user research, he came to me and said, I see that you guys are moving fast and really iterating quickly on, the, on, your, on validating or invalidating your assumptions. I trust the team. Uh, I'm willing to invest uh, you know, in, in pre-seed or seed uh, into your new company. Initially, we were not thinking of raising money. We thought, you know, we have capital, so uh, let's use this. But he convinced us that, um, you know, we could move faster and take more risks uh, if we actually raise some money. Uh, and it's also what we wanted to, I mean, the goal is to build a really big company that, that we've built a, a first one. And so we raised uh, 3 million euros or 4 million euros uh, when we launched, basically, when we incorporated the company in January 2020. And, and before really diving into the, into the actual financing there, how do you guys make money in Penny Lane? You know, what's, what's the, the business model? Maybe, maybe the people that listen to us are familiar with some other companies that kind of do the same as Penny Lane, but in other markets. So there are two, namely, uh, called QuickBooks from Intuit and uh, Xero. Uh, from New Zealand. Uh, and those two companies, what they've done is exactly what I described. Bring together on one same platform, the accountant and the customer, the SME. Uh, and so our business model looks pretty much the same uh, than, the, than theirs. Uh, so we charge SaaS uh, fees, uh, either to the accountant or to the SME, depending on the case. Uh, so that's the first you know, source of revenue. And then what we are building is basically the financial operating system of those SMEs and those accountants. And so in the future, uh, we also want to get revenue from 
building the app store on top of that operating system. And in our case, it's going to be an app store of financial services. Um, so being able to distribute to those SMEs credit, credit cards, financing, uh, insurance, healthcare, whatever, uh, and, and get a very small share uh, because we build the infrastructure that allows to distribute those services. And in, going back to the fundraising, so the, what's the total amount of money that you guys have raised so far? I believe it's uh, 85 million euros. Okay, 85 million euros. In that case, I mean, obviously on the first one, you really understood, you know, how important it was to capitalize a company well, just so that you never had to deal with running out of cash as you perhaps, you know, had to deal uh, with, with price match when you were going through the acquisition. But how did you think about the investors that you were bringing in and, and what has been the uh, journey uh, as you were going from one financing cycle to another one? So I really wanted to have, again, this kind of scientific approach. And so as well as, you know, we've done it for the ideation phase where we validated that, you know, again, people, at least when doing discussions with people that they had a pain point, our solution looked like a proper one and people wanted to pay. I then wanted to validate those assumptions for real, not just talking to people. Uh, and for me, you know, so we first, first thing is, we wanted to go to market as quickly as possible. And it's not that easy uh, to go to market when you're building an accounting software because you don't build an MVP of an accounting software in a couple of months. And if you look at the, the early days of uh, Xero or QuickBooks, it actually took them very long time to take off uh, because you, know, you just need to get that, that solid and robust uh, base. Uh, and there are lots of features that accountants require uh, to do bookkeeping. And so when thinking about this, we saw the, the, the fastest way to go to market is actually starting as an accounting firm, uh, because this way we will hire accountants on our payroll. They will know that the product is not ready and they will basically bridge the gap you know, of, the, of the product. And that way we will understand faster what accountants need in terms of features. And we'll also validate that SMEs buy that value prop of having an accountant and a platform. Uh, so that's what we've done. And we launched uh, this approximately seven or eight months after having written the first line of code. Uh, we've done, we've operated as a tech-enabled accounting firm basically for eight, nine months. Uh, and, and that's when we really validated that there was demand, strong demand from SMEs. Uh, so from the moment we launched, uh, we've signed up about 700 SMEs in France. And it was all 100% inbound. No, never any outbound. So all people coming, very high conversion rate. Um, and so we felt, you know, we validated that there's demand. We start to have a product that looks a bit more like what accountants need. Still not ready, but a bit better. And so we felt it was the right time to raise the next round to really, you know, put fuel and, and accelerate on building the right product for accountants. Um, knowing that from the beginning, we thought our go-to-market would be through accountants. So our first nine months have been SMEs acquisition, direct. And so then we raised our Series A. Uh, and from that moment, our success metric has been acquiring SMEs, not anymore directly, but acquiring them through accountants, meaning accountants proactively take customers off their legacy software and put them on penny day. Uh, and that we've done 
basically in 2021. Uh, at the beginning of the year, when we raised the Series A, uh, it was 100% of our business coming direct and 0% through accountants. And at the end of the year, it was 15% uh, coming direct and 85% through accountants. And so for us, it validated that, you know, the second step that we were able to get product market fit in the sense we had some accountants actually churning from the Lexi software and using our product. And if they use our product, it means that they save time, they are more productive, etc. Uh, and so that's when we, because we started having accountants actually putting their customers over to Penny Lane, that drove a lot, a very high growth uh, because you know, it's a way more scalable go-to-market channel. And so beginning of this year, we've actually decided to raise our Series B with, with the goal of basically really cracking the product for accountants and making sure that SMEs you know, like our product and that we are able to activate them, engage them, and monetize them. Uh, and so the next steps for us are really being on track to become the market leader in France both for accountants and for SMEs. And also, I would say, getting to getting closer from having a, a more predictable business. I would say I have, I'm getting to product market fit, but I still don't know my unit economics at all because my, my model is, is complex. I go to market through accountants, but SMEs end up paying me most of the time. So I need to know exactly you know, how many SMEs I'm, I'm able to monetize how much they're going to pay me on average, uh, how much extra revenue I'm going to be able to get uh, from non-SaaS revenue, from fintech revenue. Uh, and, and those are, you know, those will be, will be for me the triggers uh, for deciding it's time to raise the next round, which then will be more a matter of, of uh, you know, hyperscale uh, as well as internationalization. And, and in this case, I mean, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Penny Lane is fully realized. What does that world look like? So it's, it's a world where 90% of uh, European SMEs and their accountants uh, use Penny Lane. We are on the market where it's winner takes all. And those SMEs, you know, have access to the data all the time. Uh, and a lot of stuff is automated for them in terms of administrative uh, workload. And accountants have become almost like the, the GPs of those SMEs. And they, we send them proactive alerts telling them, hey, this, this customer will run out of cash in three months. I think you should call him and maybe offer them this and this and this. And accountants spend less time doing bookkeeping and, and manual repetitive tasks and spend most of their time actually really advising the customer uh, and, and pushing them the right service, the right advice. And hopefully, all of this leads to having a stronger network of SMEs in Europe. And I really believe that SMEs are the blood of, of you know, should be the blood of our European economy. They, they hire people locally, they pay taxes locally. Our end mission, you know, as Penny Lane is, is really to help those SMEs make better decisions and grow their business. Uh, and I think it can only help local communities and, and, and Europe as a whole. Uh, so that's, that's our, our goal. Um, and I think if, if you push it even further, <laughs> the day that we'll have done this, you can have really big dreams 
Uh, and one example I give is, you know, once you have all hotels using Penny Lane in Europe, you can tell a hotel, hey, did you know that you pay 10% more than other hotels for your coffee? Uh, do you want to, to get a new coffee provider? Uh, click here. Do you want to get another coffee provider, cost the same, but will be less uh, CO2 emissions, carbon emissions? Um, so if you push it even further, there are lots of business models that could uh, you know, be developed. For example, B2B wholesale marketplace or stuff like this. Uh, but I think the real key is uh, you know, being the single source of truth, financial data, and owning the attention of those SMEs and those accountants. And then you know, many people will have great ideas on what they can build on top. Uh, and I'm sure I'm not even realizing what others might be able to build with this uh, you know, data and, and attention. And for the people that are listening, you know, to get an understanding of the scope and size of Penny Lane today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of numbers like employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Sure. So, yeah, the company was incorporated two years ago. Uh, we are now about 230 people. Wow. Uh, most of them in tech and product, uh, about 60 percent, two thirds of them in tech and product. And other than this, so uh, we are now equipping about 20,000 SMEs in France. Uh, which is 1% of, of French SMEs. And the goal is to equip 80, 90% of them within the next three, three to four years, which is the market share that QuickBooks and Xero have in their uh, domestic markets. That's unbelievable. And, and let me ask you this. So imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. Maybe to that time that you are coming out of NYU where you've realized, oh my God, you know, I want to do something. I want to maybe like build a startup of my own. And you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger Arthur and having the opportunity of giving that younger Arthur one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would say, you know, don't think too much. Uh, go and, and just iterate. Uh, and I think, you know, when you're young, you just, you know, you, you, you look at entre entrepreneurship like being a mountain. Uh, while I think you should really look at it as, as something where you do test and learn and you do very small steps, iterate. Uh, and so I think, you know, many people think uh, having the right idea is, is, is the secret. It's, I think, you know, the right idea is actually, it, it matters. Uh, but I still think that you should just ask yourself the right questions. What is it that you want to build? Again, do you solve a real problem, uh, et cetera? and have a very structured approach. Uh, that would be my first piece of advice. And then, uh, you know, just run as quickly as you can uh, with the right team. But this, I, I don't have any regret. I was happy with, uh, with my co-founders, but I think this is obviously, you know, one of the main reasons why people fail is that they don't have the right team uh, at the beginning. So here's a question for you. You know, because a lot of people are probably thinking again about the number of co-founders that you have and how effective you've been able to, 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 to run, you know, the first company, which ended up being an acquisition, and now this next one with all these employees. Any piece of advice around streamlining the communication between co-founders or how or any tips or any, what's the major thing that you've learned, perhaps, about having a very healthy relationship with co-founders? First piece of advice, I think there should be no taboo. Uh, I think every, all the co-founders should have a, a very open discussion at the beginning. 
make sure that they agree that they can give honest feedback to each other, even if they are friends, and that this should not hurt their friendship. Uh, so that would be my my number one advice. Uh, and then I think it's making sure that each co-founder has a very clear success metric that they are responsible for. Uh, and again, a very clearly defined scope. And from there, I think uh, having very regular touch points. Still today, we have a, a weekly uh, meeting uh, where we go through our OKRs, we go through our success metrics and and we give each other, we challenge each other and, and uh, make sure that we steer in the right direction. Uh, and then also on a, on, on a day-to-day, uh, being very close, sharing. I would say communicating too much uh, doesn't hurt. Communi- communicating not enough as is very likely to hurt. So always communicate too much and, and rather than not enough. I love it. So Arthur, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, LinkedIn is, is the platform where uh, I should probably be, made, will, will be the most reactive. Fantastic. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.